Team, I can't say enough about this audience and how amazing all of you are. Um, many of you have been with me now for almost 10 years. Uh, many of you have been a part of this journey with me for, for really every step of the way, and others have just joined in the last few months, last few weeks. And I am humbled every day that you give me your time, that you are willing to, with, with all the options I know that are out there, to listen to, to watch, to just to consume content, that you spend your time with me every day is honestly, in, in, in a way, amazing to me and, and sacred to me. And I am deeply appreciative of it. I really am. I mean, my family makes fun of me. I do, I do feel like I say this aw shuck stuff, but I really mean it. I'm so humbled by the fact that people across the country, hundreds of thousands of you every day are listening to this show. And I, I think it's deeply meaningful and I, I greatly appreciate it. So here's my uh, announcement in case you don't know. Uh, I am moving time slots. Um, I have been Premier Radio Network's syndicated host for, this is now my fifth year, uh, from six to nine. A lot of you listen to me on a little bit of a delay or you listen to the podcast, but six to nine has been my official time slot. I am moving within the next 30 days uh, to the Rush Limbaugh slot, 12 to three, as a co-host with Clay Travis, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with from his uh, really successful and excellent sports radio uh, show and, and podcast. So, yes, I, I am going to be moving into the radio real estate, so to speak, that has opened up since the uh, since the passing of the greatest radio host of all time, the true radio icon of our time, Rush Limbaugh. But I'm moving into the 12 to 3 slot. I'll be co-hosting with Clay and this will mean that my voice will be a part of a co-host of the biggest radio show in America within 30 days, the largest by audience in, in the country. And that's pretty amazing. And that's something that I, I have to say thank you to all of you about this because you listen, because you appreciate the work and the integrity and the consistency that is going into this show every day and it's a i'm, I'm hugely thankful to uh premier radio networks and iHeartMedia for this uh, enormous i mean vote of confidence barely even covers it i mean th this is a game changer team for team buck we, we are going now to the millions and millions of listeners a day level i'm thrilled that it's i'm going to be doing this with clay travis We've already been doing some uh, some test shows together in the background just to get our our bearings, just just practice shows. Um, so if I've sounded a little tired in recent weeks, you have a better sense as to why. But it's amazing. I mean, here I am, a, a kid who started out with a speech impediment and had to go to speech therapy lessons as a kid. And people made fun of me because I could not pronounce my name. I usually tell this on my birthday every year i kind of give a, a version of this story but it's all true my mom my dad my siblings they would all tell you i i went through early life with the name buck but i spent years saying my name was butt because i had pronunciation difficulties i i was not uh, i was not good at speaking 
And God bless my parents and my family who I get a little emotional even just thinking about how supportive they've been my whole life. But I, I'm blessed to have an amazing mom and dad and two incredible brothers and a wonderful sister. Um, and, and yes, I have a, a beautiful girlfriend whose name is not actually the Snow Princess, but we, will, we like to keep some degree of privacy and anonymity there. Um, but my, my family has been with me for a very long time, and uh, obviously, and they've been amazing at, at every step of the way. And that meant when I was a kid and I couldn't even pronounce my, I could imagine not being able to pronounce your own name. It's one thing to have some words that come up, but I would introduce myself and people would think that I was pulling some kind of gag or something. How, how can you not be able to say your own name? Uh, so I got speech therapy lessons and then... I ended up on the speech and debate team in high school and did quite well and then went off to the CIA. I never thought I was even going to work in conservative media. And within 30 days, give or take, we're not we haven't set an exact date yet, but roughly the next month, I'm going to be uh, taking the microphone on, on the biggest stage in radio in the United States. And I think, therefore, it's fair to say the world so that's a pretty remarkable circumstance. And it's just because every time I ask people on this show, every time I said to all of you, please pass the buck, tell somebody about this show. I've gone through this now for years with, I have no marketing. I've never raised a dollar of investment money for my show in terms of you know outside investors to do anything for Buck Sexton. Uh, I've never had a, a marketing budget to speak of. I've, I've never been, I just, you know, had an opportunity to be on some great radio stations and then you listened, So the numbers were strong. So I got on more radio stations and you all told people, Hey, you should really give this guy a chance. You know? Yeah. He's, you know, a New York city kid and uh, he comes out of the CIA and sometimes he can be a little, uh, I don't know, curmudgeonly or intense or whatever, but he, he does a really worthwhile radio show. If you, if you're somebody that cares about politics and current events, and so you pass the buck, and that's why we're at this point. I mean, to be here in in less than 10 years to get to the point where I'll, I'm going to be stepping in to the, the greatest radio time slot, and thanks. I, I owe Rush Limbaugh more than I can begin to say, but obviously he created this industry, really. He was the first, and he built the 12 to 3 time slot to be what set the agenda for conservatism. You know, there's the Rush show, and then at night a lot of people will watch Fox in primetime. But those are really the, the juggernauts. Those are the, are the grand platforms of conservative media. I mean, nothing else really, nothing else comes close in terms of numbers, in terms of influence. And when Rush was doing his thing, I think we all know that he was setting the agenda, and then everybody else came, came after that. Uh, so to have that... Look, it's a responsibility. I'm very aware of the fact it's a big responsibility. I'm very aware of the fact that I'm going to be stepping in to do a show that is the, is the show known to be hosted by the greatest, the greatest rather radio host of all time. And that's that's a lot. Right. And we are in a point in our country's history when politics are particularly acrimonious and nasty and polarized and all of that is very true and I, i'm not in this game uh just because i i like the business of it or i enjoy radio i actually want to help the country 
I want to fight for this country. This is why I do what I do every day. There are other things where I could make lots of money and have a whole lot more free time and more of a personal life. But this really matters to me. And this show every day that I've done it already, even on a smaller scale, has been meaningful to me and I hope has been meaningful, not just to all of you, but at some level to the national conversation. And it's just a blessing. And I'm, I'm a little uh, a little tired out today because this has been a lot getting to this point And when the announcement finally comes out and is, is public as it is now, I can kind of breathe easy. But it almost feels like at the end of a marathon here. So um, that's that's really where we are. And I I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I'm so thankful for all of you who listen and for the time you've given me and for the ability to to create this show and make it into something meaningful. And also a big thanks to producer Mark, who has been my right hand here for for now. I don't know how many. Mark, how many years has it been? About two years now. Two years. Mark has been with me. But I mean, during the pandemic, I mean, it was just basically my life was was hanging out with producer Mark to do this show. Occasional visits from the Snow Princess and Tallulah, the French Bulldog for over a year, <clears throat> excuse me, for over a year. And so it's uh, it's been quite a thing. And, and Mark, you know, you've become a voice that's known on the show. And and, uh, you know, we, we've got we got big plans for Mark, too, folks. So don't worry. Things are things are all in process. It's all happening. So, you know, this is uh, this is where we're going. Uh, this is the this is the future. I'm so thankful. Appreciate all the messages you've already been sending me. I know the Wall Street Journal sent out a huge push notification and I've never gotten so many messages at once on my I, I felt like my phone had been hit with a missile or something. It just my phone was blowing up all over the place. And uh, it's amazing. And I'm I'm thankful. I'm humbled. And for me, I mean, this is the equivalent of maybe not winning the Super Bowl, but getting to the Super Bowl. Winning is going to be creating a great show with Clay Travis, uh, really making it meaningful for people, providing a, a voice of of insight, entertainment, comfort in this crazy country that feels like it's just losing its mind sometimes. Uh, I, I, you know, we're just going to do the absolute best show we can every day and make it all worth your time. So this show will continue for at least the next uh, month or so as it is. That's the plan. And so if and if you listen to me on podcast, I want you to know that the Buck Sexton podcast will also continue. So don't think that's going away. We're going to be doing a Buck Sexton podcast uh, probably before the 12 to 3 show every day. Be about 30, 40 minutes, just me riffing and doing my thing. And then I'm going to sit in the studio with Clay. That That's our plan. So don't think that the Buck Sexton podcast is going away. Um, but we're going to be doing this show 12 to 3. It'll be the, the it's the biggest radio platform in America. And uh, here I am telling you that this is really happening. It doesn't feel all that real to me yet. But with each passing hour, I think it gets more real. So I just want to send to all the team out there, to all of you listening across America. Um, I just want to send you a big hug and thank you. And you're all amazing. And so many people in this audience that I've been writing to and, and texting and messaging with for years You've been so you've just been so awesome. And on my worst days, on days when it felt like, uh, you know, I, I, I've done this show when I've had, you know, a terrible, uh, you know, stomach illness and celiac disease that I didn't even know what it was and migraines and through 
breakups in my personal life. So, you know, illness and, and, you know, emotional stuff in my life and everything else. And you were always, I, I know sometimes people feel like the radio host is there for them. You all, you all were always there for me. And I, I hope you'll all join me at 12 to three and it's a celebration team. Pretty amazing. I don't anticipate that the durability of the vaccine protection is going to be in infinite. It's, it's just not. Right. So I would imagine we will need at some time a booster. What we're figuring out right now is what that interval is going to be. We know from studies following people from the original clinical trials that the protection goes out at least six months and likely a year. But we don't know right now how long that will be. So what we're doing is we're following those cohorts because there's a level of protection that's called a correlative immunity. And we know that if you're above that level, you're in quite good shape to be protected. The, the vaccine itself gives you a level up here. So how long it takes to start coming back down, we're following it. So we could have to get booster shots at some point. So I, I, I just want everyone to be very clear. We, we're now operating in this world where we think, okay, we've gotten past the madness of, of COVID. Uh, we've gotten past the point where um, Fauci can get away with saying any absurdity that he wants to. But we still have the prospect of this returning in the future. I, I want everyone to be very clear on that. This is not over with. For those who say, Buck, why do you why do you um, keep talking about masking and social distancing and the regulations and all this stuff and how crazy it is? It's because I'm I'm telling you they're not done now. Maybe they're not able to get back to where they want to be with the control, with the authority they had, but they're not finished with us yet. Fauci and the rest of them, they think they've done a good job because if they didn't accept that narrative, if they did not believe that they had done a good job, think about what that would mean. If they had been wrong, as Fauci has been this whole time, think about what they've put the country through unnecessarily with the mask mania and the lockdowns and just the constantly changing expert advice. People have less faith in doctors now and in the medical community than they did before the pandemic. I think that's pretty clear, at least when it comes to health policy experts, maybe not your personal MD or personal physician. Um, but in terms of everyone else out there who's talking about the public health measures. Yeah, it's a it's pretty. Pretty remarkable that this is the situation that we're in. It's pretty remarkable that these are the circumstances in which we find ourselves because they've been wrong so often. And yet we're supposed to think that they're not going to be wrong again in the future. Here's Fauci on, you know, his biggest flip flop recently had to do with the they're studying the bats. You know, you wouldn't study them in Virginia, in Fairfax. You got to study them in China. Well, here he is on. He's not he wasn't wrong. He just had to adjust things a little bit. Play six. I have always said that the high likelihood is that this is a natural occurrence. I didn't dismiss anything. I just said it's a high likelihood that this is a natural occurrence from the environment of an animal reservoir that we have not yet identified. Well, and I still maintain that. But as, as I just mentioned to the response 
to other questions that since you don't know 100% about that, because no one knows, including me, 100% what the origin is, is the reason why we're in favor of further investigation. You know, I just want to know more. I'm in favor of the further investigation. And yeah, yeah, sure you are. Now he's in favor of further investigation. Be- before it was a, uh, it was much less clear that that was what, because they were, they were really shutting down the narrative that Donald Trump was using. And that's because they had to oppose whatever Trump said. It didn't really matter. Oh, here, you know, you look back and you start to, to pull at some of the headlines and see what was being said. There was such a sense of certainty and authority that they had on all this. And it just wasn't true. It wasn't real. It wasn't accurate. But it was more important to seem right at the time and to use certainty to achieve that perception than to actually be correct on the facts, than to actually be correct on the substance. So that's... That's a huge lesson learned here. And you and I have learned it because we pay attention to this. But the, the rest, the others out there, I'm telling you, the Fauciites, they're still wearing masks. Think about this. I've been telling everybody. I walk around New York City now. There are people that are outdoors wearing masks. And they'll tell you, people will defend this and say, oh, they're just being careful. So if they're being careful... I'm sure they're vaccinated, right? I mean, if you're somebody who's scared enough about this virus, and you're going to wear a mask outside. You must be scared enough that you're going to get vaccinated. And so now you've got vaccinated people outdoors wearing masks just to give you a sense of how this is not something that is just going to fade away easily. This was a mass psychological control experiment that was run in this country. Of course, there was a very deadly real virus. I'm not saying that, but there was a, a side effect of this was the psychological control experiment. And it did not go well for those those of us who believe in liberty. As we headed to Memorial Day weekend, the summer months ahead are always a great reminder of how lucky we are to be Americans. From time with friends and family, backyard barbecues, road trips, ball games, hitting the beach, the lake, wherever, you name it. It's also a great time to show how proud we are to be Americans. And part of the way we do that is by flying the American flag in front of our homes and not just any American flag. I recommend one that you could rest assured won't tangle around a pole or get mildewed, torn, shredded or any of that stuff because it constantly happens to flags out there when they're not the right kind. That's why you have to check out my friends at Allegiance Flag Supply. They make the highest quality American flags and accessories. And by the way, they do it right here in America. Go to showallegiance.com and enter promo code BUCK for 10% off your order. Check out not just the options they have for your home, but for any of you boat owners out there getting ready to put the boat back in the lake this weekend, they've got everything you need for your boat or dock. Again, go to showallegiance.com. Make sure you enter the promo code BUCK when you get to the checkout for 10% off your order. Get a beautiful, durable American flag. Show your patriotism. It's so important these days, isn't it? Get yours in time for Flag Day on June 14th. Just go to the website, showallegiance.com. Enter promo code BUCK for 10% off. And let's fly the American flag with pride everywhere this summer. It starts with you. Showallegiance.com. Promo code BUCK at checkout. Because we don't know where the novel coronavirus came from yet, the conspiracy theories fill the void. I'm telling you, the Chi-Coms are trying to weaponize this thing. 
Conservative talk show host Rush Limbaugh with zero proof suggesting a Chinese bioweapon lab is to blame. There's this question about the Wuhan lab. We know that it's been debunked. Those same agencies now have been tapped with investigating one of Trump world's most favorite conspiracy theories. This week, Donald Trump is still pushing the debunked bunkum, despite his own intelligence community's findings that that is simply not true. And there is simply no reason to believe that that is the case. There is no empirical evidence to verify that. Coming up with a conspiracy theory to try and foment xenophobia um, with respect to um, the Chinese has just as much factual support as taking Clorox. He can't just sit back and let the doctors and the scientists do their jobs. He's got to chime in. He may pick up the conspiracy theory that this was some weapon. People don't keep bats in captivity. Complete baloney. Oh, okay, so they should make fun of everybody who was right. Trump was right. Rush was right. Cotton was right. You go down the list. All these, all these people who were saying, oh, I think it came from a lab. They they were mocked and ridiculed. Why would they be mocked and ridiculed on a point where no one really knew the answer and there was a completely reasonable perspective based on what actual data that we had that it did come from a lab, right? But this brings me to, to what I'm, I'm really fired up about today in terms of the news cycle. Obviously, big announcement today, and in case you missed it earlier, I'll be moving as the co-host 12 to 3 nationwide in the Rush Limbaugh slot, uh, co-hosting with Clay Travis, the two of us, a duo to bring talk radio, you know, further into the future uh, to just continue on the legacy and to, and to build and to bring in hopefully new generations to listen. And that's that's our plan. But we're going to be uh, we're going to be going for it. And so that's where my mind is today. So if I sound at all scattered or anything, folks, it's not because of anything other than today is probably the biggest day in my professional career now yet. So that's that's a lot to uh, to handle. It's it's, you know, I, I like I've said before, I've had to do the show under all kinds of circumstances. Um, but a day like this where there's really honestly so much celebration, but also recognition of responsibility, it's 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 hit me. It's hit me right now. So. I'll just do what I do, focus in on the work. Facebook was suppressing stories uh, about this. Facebook was suppressing anybody who was trying to push the idea. And it, w- it was a theory. No one, it's not that anyone said it was absolute, but it was a theory. And the social media giants decided that you weren't allowed. You were not allowed to, to share this idea out there. You were not allowed to tell people this on their platforms because they were so sure that it was wrong. We ran this experiment, as I've said, in authoritarianism. It was like a one year trial of authoritarianism. And we ran this experiment in such a way that we were able to see who really thinks that they should have the right to control public perception and public communication. And yes, it's the authoritarian left, the Democrat Party, but the social media giants were awful on this. And we should never forget what they did. We should never forget that they allowed, you know, idiot English literature majors who work in the, you know, either the fact checking or the customer service or the customer experience or whatever departments of Facebook. And these are not the 
the actual engineers or anything that built these systems, but the people that get to make determinations about policy within them are a bunch of, you know, left wing liberal arts grads who don't know a thing about a thing, but they're able to tell you that you're not allowed to have your um, not not even belief, just you're not even allowed to posit a theory, one that was always rooted in in data and one that was always rooted in, in fact, but you weren't necessarily clear on. Think about how much this undermines also our belief that we're allowed to have conversations in this country about, oh, everything from, you know, vaccines and vaccine policy to how we would deal with a pandemic in the future. They said, shut up, you're not allowed to disagree. And they did that on major issues where they were wrong. They were wrong. Now, I, I think that's deeply uh, concerning for us. It's, it's one thing to, to be chasing down flat earthers, and I know that's what they thought they were doing, right? Their belief, at least some of them, I, I think others recognize that this was just a power play, but at some level their belief was that they were, they were eliminating uh, factually, egregiously wrong stuff. But what do we do about the fact that they were wrong? Well, what is, what is the takeaway from this? How do we how do we go forward as a society in response to the fact that those who have the most power to control conversations across the country, those who have the most influence, they are, in fact, the ones who were the most egregiously wrong, enormously, catastrophically on the wrong side of many issues, whether it was school reopened for children, whether it was the shutdown of the Wuhan lab escape theory in so many areas. They just were making it up as they were going along. And I, I, I've just I got to tell you, um, that's going to be something that we have to address because you don't think that they're going to give this power up willingly going into the next election. I mean, going into things in the future where the narrative really matters a whole lot. And where does the narrative matter more? than in a presidential election, right? Where does perception matter more than in politics? And, and that's why, um, you know, I think we're at a point where we have to take the power of big tech away or else there'll be no future in which we could even conceive of it. We have to find ways to nullify this advantage in what is really a PSYOP campaign. And when they can tell you that you can't say something because it's untrue and it is true and there's no consequences for them. Yeah, they did it during a pandemic, but they also did it about the election. They're also going to do it about the next election. I can assure you of that. And they don't do it to their own side. Russia collusion, completely fine. No problem with that whatsoever. Russia collusion, they were also happy with that. And... That's because it was advancing their narrative. It was advancing what their side wanted. And as, as I just see this continue on here, we ignore this as conservatives, as Americans, we ignore this at our peril. I'm still enraged, honestly, very, very angry about what all these tech companies did to shut down free speech at a time when we needed more speech, when we needed a greater ability to share thoughts that were contrary to the dominant narrative. 
And there needs to be accountability and it should be scorched earth. I mean, whatever we can do to hobble big tech's uh, ability to do this going forward, we should do whatever can whatever actions can be taken. um, That's what needs to happen. And uh, I, I wish I could say that there was a clear roadmap here that we knew exactly where all this is going. But I can tell you this. Elections in this country are going to be very tight at the national level for the foreseeable future. And if they can shut down information and people that spread conservative thoughts, ideas, values, if they can shut us down with impunity, they will continue to do so. Now it's now the cat's out of the bag. Now we see what the real idea is here, what they're really trying to accomplish with all that they do. And it is complete information dominance in order to control America and make it effectively impossible for us to fight back. All right, I've got my friend Jesse Kelly with us now. He is a syndicated radio host in his own right of The Jesse Kelly Show. Also, my brother on The First TV, where he has I'm Right with Jesse Kelly on every night. And like me, he was one of the few from the very beginning who refused to bend the knee to the mass cultists, to big tech, to their suppression all of it. Jesse, what's it feel like to be right, my man? Well, it's a heavy burden that I carry around all the time, Buck. I, I'm just so used to it by this point. It's in no, no seriousness. Oh, by the way, before we get going, is it awkward if I congratulate you? Because I know every single person and their brother has congratulated you today, and I don't just want to be that guy, but I am very happy for you, and it's well-deserved. That's one. Two, it feels good being right, Buck, but would, it would honestly make me feel better if I thought everyone had learned their lesson so they didn't trust the system the next time. And, I mean, let me ask you, man. Do you feel like they've learned their lesson? No. I don't, I, I don't, I no. don't hear a lot of accountability out there. I don't think I've heard one person step up and say, ooh, you know, I kind of blew that. I'll do better next time. Absolutely not. There's been no accountability for those who were wrong. And, you know, a perfect example of this is in my building, Jesse, where I live in New York City. Uh, they have left up. Now, now. There's no official word. During COVID, we would get these, you know, you better mask up or else building policy, health department, blah, blah. That they were they were all about it. But now that it's no longer even even in New York, I mean, we're not quite as, as cool as Texas where you are. But even in New York, there's no more. If you're vaccinated, you know, you're, you're allowed. And we all know that that also means we're just kind of on the honor system now. And, and people are just going to do what they're going to do, basically, about about masking indoors. But they're they've told me this. The building managers told me they they won't pull down their wear a mask signs in, in all public places because people are so scared. So I'm, I'm walking around saying, basically, we've got a bunch of, you know, 30 to 50 year olds in my building wearing masks. They're all vaccinated. OK, they're all vaccinated. They're wearing masks and we can't pull the signs down because they've been so conditioned that they're too frightened to deal with the new reality of living normal lives. Well, what's that? You've seen that movie. You, everyone's seen the great movie Shawshank Redemption, right? And, and, and the old guy, I think his name was Red, who finally gets let out of prison, and he can't, he can't deal with it. He ends up hanging himself in some grungy little apartment because he cannot deal with freedom. Now, I understand that may be a little bit of a hammy analogy, but it's 100% true with what we're dealing with, Buck. People have been told you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die, grandma's going to die, your kids are going to die, everyone in America's going to die. If you, why don't you wear a mask? You're going to kill everybody. In, in, in the, especially the soft brain people in this society, I don't know that there is a way to deprogram those people, Buck. I've argued, and people think I'm nuts, I think it'll take 10 years before you see all the masks 
come off. We have convinced people time and time again, the entire system told them millions would die. How do you all of a sudden stand up now and say, oh, hey, you're good. People, people can't think like that. Their minds don't work like that. It'll be a long time, man. And I'm not trying to. And we're speaking to Jesse Kelly, host of the Jesse Kelly Show. You can also listen to his podcast if you listen to podcasts. Uh, Jesse, I, I'm not trying to make a, a stretch here with this with this uh, this next leap, but it may sound like it to some. The the Biden administration is trying to mirror the Obama administration in as many ways as it possibly can. The strategies, the rhetoric, we're see, we're seeing this all right. This is. This is the third Obama term without Obama as president. And, and Biden is effectively just a vessel for the Obama machinery of the Democrat Party to do what it wants to do. And they love using a crisis and the compliance from the public that that brings to push things. You know, before it was it was the financial crisis of 2008 and all these things were getting done. And oh, you need health care and oh, you need a trillion dollar stimulus. What I see here is they're not yet they're not yet satisfied with the amount of bending of the knee they had from COVID because they haven't been able to push it into the into their preferred policies, which is why they're now talking about a six trillion dollar spending bill from by six trillion dollar budget. In addition to the trillions of spending on infrastructure and other things, they've, they've got a crisis, Jesse, and they're not letting it go to waste. They don't because that's their mentality, Buck. I mean, you just nailed it. You always do that. You nailed it. That's their mentality. Now, it's why every Democrat I've ever known, for the most part, is a miserable human being. At the same time, they do get wins all the time in politics because they're never happy. I mean, what did COVID do for the Democrats? Well, let's see. It let them bounce a sitting president who, bombastic as he was, was wildly, insanely successful, both economically and foreign policy-wise. COVID allowed them to bounce that man from power and give Democrats power. But the beauty of Democrats, the way they handle their business, and we should probably be more like this, they don't take the presidency and the House and the Senate and then sit back and take even five minutes and say to themselves, oh, man, we nailed this. No, the second they get there, it's what else can we destroy? How else can we wreck this country? We must advance constantly. And it's why a small minority of communists have managed to take over every cultural institution in this country in the course of about 50, 60 years. I like that you throw around the term communist to talk about them. I mean, I'll refer to them as commies, which is clearly meant to just be disparaging, but also go to their root ideology. You know, Jesse, that there are going to be people who say that's not fair. They're not really communists. They're democratic socialists or, you know, they're progressive Democrat, whatever. They'll, they'll prefer some other uh, some other terminology. Just I want, I want you to tell me and all the folks listening why why do you think that communists is the way to actually refer to these hardcore leftists? Well, people would pretend communism is somehow complicated, but this is the problem they make. Whoa, no, we, they haven't seen, seized the means of production yet, things like that. Communism is not complicated, people. Communism is simply the promise of power in exchange for hurting the people you blame for your problems. That's all communism has ever been. That's all communism is now. That's why it's not economic in America. It's more shifted to race and sex and things like that. It always takes that form. And that is the Democrat Party's policy form. Let me ask everybody who doubts that they're communists. I want you to imagine the Democrat primary when all those candidates were up there. Imagine one candidate besides Tulsi Gabbard answering the question, tell me what you love about America. Imagine what one of them would said. Not one of them would have had an answer to that question at all. Because they don't love America, they want to destroy America, just like all communists have done. Communism is a religion of domination and destruction. That's what the Democratic Party has become. Jesse, 
what is your case for optimism going into this uh, this holiday weekend and, and a summer when at least we'll be able to breathe a little more freely? Uh, I watch America waking up, Buck. These numbers of people moving out of states, moving out of California, moving out of New York to places that are more free. Now, granted, that makes me sad for California. That makes me sad for New York. I don't like to just toss states aside. But that tells me the American people do not want to live under tyrannical governments. They will choose to live in places where they can be free. And they're waking up to the gigantic scam that is the system. The people are waking up. Jesse Kelly, everybody. Check out The Jesse Kelly Show. Listen to his podcast wherever you get podcasts. My man, Jesse, always appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Congrats again, my brother. I'm proud of you. My buddy Ben Ferguson is in the house, and he joins us now to talk about all the latest and greatest. He is the host of the Ben Ferguson Show on podcast and radio. Mr. Ben, how's life from Tennessee? You, you know, I was worried there for a minute that, you know, with all the big news about you, uh, Taking over the Limbaugh spot that I was, you know, you're going to have to change your cell phone number and then you're, you know, you'd have to shut down all your accounts. So us commoners couldn't get in touch with you anymore. So I'm glad to know that we, you're still keeping the same number, big dog, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, so far, so far, so good. The trolls haven't found me yet. So that's, <laughs> that's the good they, news. They will. Don't worry. Don't oh worry. man. I know. I'm, in I'm, all seriousness. Congratulations. I'm, thank you so and, uh, much, man. Dude, it's uh, it, when you when you get that phone call that I'm sure you got. There's a a pinch yourself moment, just knowing that all the hard work uh, of your entire career paid off. And I, I mean it as sincerely as possible. And I hope you celebrate the moment. I hope you step back and just enjoy the moment uh, and realize what you've accomplished in your career by 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 getting named to the biggest gig in radio. It's a, it's a life dream. Many people don't ever even get the chance. Uh, to be even be considered for something like this. And, and you you and I have talked about this, but I want to say it publicly. You and I both know no one's ever going to replace Rush Limbaugh. But if there's anybody to keep the torch alive and keep moving forward, uh, that's going to be able to do this in an incredible way. It's going to be you and Clay. And I'm, I'm, I'm fired up for you guys and excited. And, and what a what a really cool moment. So dinner's on me actually no you're the big dog now making all the money so dinner's on you but we'll celebrate next time i see you i appreciate that my man you're, you're one of the good ones in this business and and i i've always uh you know always really been thankful for having someone you know just for you all listening ben is is somebody who i have been able to i, I can talk to him about radio and you know i've got his back he's got mine you know he's with me in the iheart family and and we we share a lot of ideas and thoughts about where where all this stuff is going. So means a lot to me, man. And and I'm and I'm somebody who very much uh, I remember I remember my friends, and I know you do too. So as as this all as this all shakes out, you're going to be hearing more Ben Ferguson on the uh, well on the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show, and then also the Buck Sexton podcast. But you all should check out the Ben Ferguson podcast where he does an excellent show. And I will say I I do do still need to go. I was promised, uh, I was promised world class barbecue at your restaurant in Memphis and shooting machine guns in Tennessee. So this is what I was told is going to happen. Don't think I've forgotten about this. <laughs> so the only place I'm ever going to buy you a meal again is at my restaurant. Outside of that, I've always wanted a rich radio friend. You're now officially that guy. So you're paying when we go out anywhere else. But in Memphis, yes, Ferguson's Barbecue is on me, I can promise you. So, man, how, how are you feeling about, let, let's just take a step back here. State of the country right now, this Biden administration, what we see going on. 
I, I feel like the, the bloom is off the rose a little bit. Yeah, there's the libs and they're crazy and they'll say he's great. But I think people are starting to realize, oh, this is really bad. <laughs> this is this is making your life harder, more expensive, less free, you know, with with very little upside for a whole lot of folks across the country. Yeah, I, I think there's there's two hypotheses here. Either one. Uh, we got lied to directly by Joe Biden, and he's laughing all the way to the communist bank, right? He's no moderate Joe, as he described himself kind of during the campaign. Or the second uh, theory, and I think this is the one I lean more towards, and that is he's really not running the country, and he's totally out of touch with what actually is happening, and people are abusing uh, his inaction, Right. His his lack of engagement because of whatever the hell is going on with him cognitively. Uh, and they're just running hardcore to the socialist left right now and, and doing everything they can. I mean, look at inflation right now. This is something that you shouldn't you should care about regardless of politics as prices are continuing to rise. And I saw the Biden administration say, well, you don't need to worry about inflation because we just sent you an average family. I think they said ten thousand five hundred dollars. So it will, quote, cover the inflation. Okay, well, personal consumption expenditures went up 11.3% in January through March this year. Uh, You you look at that, that's also unexpected, the Treasury has said. Uh, This is not what they were expecting, so it's bad. The Commerce Department is saying, yes, we agree that this is up, but don't worry because we sent you a bunch of free money, so it'll cover it. Well, what about the next quarter? You're going to send another check in the next quarter after that. Are you going to send another check? I'm assuming no. And then we hear that even Joe Biden is so delusional that he's got a new plan to spend even more money, trillions of dollars. And there's people scratching their head. I think even the Democratic Party now going, uh, how are you going to pay for this? How, how is it feasible to accomplish this? Now, now all of this is happening while the guy doesn't back Israel. Uh, while he's sending money to the Palestinians, while we're getting our lunch eaten by China right now uh, and what's happening with their policies with China and the fact that they're having to backtrack on the COVID-19 virus where they said, oh, it came from a wet market. We're sure it came from a wet market. And sure enough, it didn't. Ben Ferguson, everybody of the Ben Ferguson podcast. And Ben, you know, one area where I think we've also seen the delusional left and, and Biden To be fair, Biden is not quite a defund the police guy, but his party is the defund the police party. I mean, the the id, the the uh, the heart and soul of the Democrat left right now is anti cop pro BLM movement. And and I think we've all seen based in just the numbers, the violence numbers the last year that there's been no upside to this. And it's been horrible for a lot of cities all across the country. And the Democrats, this might eventually, meaning in the next election cycle, this could really come back to haunt them. And it should. I think that's the most important thing to remember. Well, it should. And the numbers, if you look at this, just the new numbers that came out recently, the the support for Black Lives Matter has plummeted in this country. I mean, totally plummeted because people are tired of living uh, in hell and seeing these high crime numbers that are continuing to come out. Uh, of areas where we have defunded or pushed to defund the police. I mean, look at the murder rates, and this is only murder rates year over year. Philadelphia up 40%. Minneapolis is up 56%. Portland, uh, where they're having just total riots nightly now, up 800%. 
New York City's up 22%, Chicago's up 22%, Los Angeles up 27%, DC up 35%. All of these cities have two things in common. Black Lives Matter has taken over, the elected officials have abandoned and dehumanized the police, and they've all moved in some shape, matter, or form to defund the police. So now you're having people that can get out that are getting out. I mean, hell, you're in New York, right? You know this. How many of your friends have left saying, I'm never coming back. I'm not going to live in this city any longer that is so anti-police and, and is shutting down businesses and small businesses and destroying an economy. You combine these two things together to where we are now. And I do think there's going to be hell to pay come midterm elections. because. And But there's some Democrats that I really think are okay with their opposition, and that's how they see many of the people that are leaving, leaving. They're going, good, you leave, and I don't have to worry about you voting against me. You leave the city, and I will own this city, even if it is a hellhole like a Detroit, for example, where I'm totally in control. I mean, that's what the, the recent police chief in Detroit said as he's thinking about running a, for governor in Michigan. He's like, they abandoned a city and then seized power, and we're fine with it. That is a problem, and he's absolutely right. You know, the another area where I also think that not only is the Biden administration vulnerable politically, uh, but but I think that people are going to realize in time that they have no and there's no way they're going to be able to stop this vulnerability. I mean, they they actually aren't going to be able to really moderate their position or or fix it, and that's at the southern border. You know, I just had uh, earlier this week. Uh, senator from your home state, Marsha Blackburn in Tennessee on. And yeah. people think of and I was just down at the border recently, Ben, and people think of it as a as a Texas, New Mexico, Arizona issue, maybe a California and New York issue because the big cities and the, and the magnet for a lot of illegal illegal immigrants to come to into those uh, those job markets. Um, but it's also an everywhere issue in this country. She was telling me that in Tennessee, there are illegal alien children who are being flown in by HHS uh, sometimes in like the middle of the, the night. Middle of the night. And, yeah, in the and, middle of the night in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and none of the locally elected officials were even told this was happening. What's even more corrupt is not only are they flying these kids into Chattanooga, for example, but then they're immediately in the middle of the night at 2.33 in the morning putting them on a bus and driving them all the way down to Miami, Florida, or driving them back uh, to Dallas, Texas, for example, I would argue that's a form of child abuse. You, you put a kid on a plane without a parent in the middle of the night. You fly them to an undisclosed location in their mind, and then you take them so no one can see them and put them on buses. Uh, and then you put them on these buses where they're not allowed to leave the buses for 20 hours, for 18 hours. Uh, and those numbers aren't, aren't, aren't a joke. If you look at the bus routes and, and what they drive, which is the speed limit, right? To get down to Miami from Chattanooga or to get from Chattanooga back to Dallas uh, and, and not allowing the kids ever to leave the bus, I would argue that's a form of child abuse. Speaking of Ben Ferguson, host of the Ben Ferguson podcast and radio show, you should all check out uh, what, what he's doing over there. You can subscribe to it wherever you listen to podcasts. Ben, uh, it seems to me that there's a, a clear possibility. I mean, I tweeted yesterday that it's it's – Likely in my mind that Ron DeSantis will be president. It's just a question of when. But there are still these uh, messages being put out by President, former President Trump, and there's a lot of people who are saying they're you know ninety percent sure, ninety five percent sure. What do you think right now? What, what do you think the temperament of the conservative base is about this? What do they see? What do they want? 
Look, I, I think regardless of what the media tries to sell us, this party right now is still the party of Donald Trump. That could change depending on the outcome of the midterm elections. If Donald Trump gets on the campaign trail and does what he does so well in these rallies with the lifting uh, of all these COVID insane restrictions, and he's able to flip the House and add in the Senate maybe or flip the Senate, I guess, technically from where we are right now, then it's his if he wants it. Now, if he doesn't, I think the front runner is certainly Ron DeSantis at this point. And there's a lot of people that like Ron DeSantis because he's gotten pretty much everything right with COVID. Uh, he's a lot like Donald Trump. I would argue a little bit more polished and less mean tweets, which many in the establishment may appreciate. And there's some that just hate Donald Trump and the GOP, uh, and they hate him so much uh, that they're ready to move on to anybody else. Now, you, you, but you also look, there's still a civil war happening right now within the D, the GOP. Uh, I mean, look at the arrogance of former Speaker of the House, former vice presidential candidate. Uh, Paul Ryan, whose who's quote in the headline from CNN today made me laugh, he says he's going to enter the GOP's civil war by criticizing Trump. I would argue who gives a crap, right? I mean, no one gives a crap. And he, he says we've got to move. And, you know, of course, he leaks these excerpts, excerpts of the speech. He's going to give it the Reagan library in translation. He called a reporter and said, you want part of my speech? We're going to criticize Trump because he wants a headline. But he says apparently in his speech he's going to give. Uh, he said, quote, the Republicans must move away from the populist appeal of one personality because then we're not going anywhere. What's so ironic about this is he's going to give this speech at the Ronald Reagan presidential library. And Ronald Reagan was to the GOP exactly what Donald Trump is the GOP right now. And to say at Ronald Reagan's library that you can't have a one man one personality lead a party is insanity because that's exactly what Ronald Reagan actually did. Remember, Ronald Reagan was the anti-establishment choice when he got the nomination in 1980. Uh, the, the safe choice, if you remember, was George Bush, 41. And there was a big war. And then to bring people back together, Ronald Reagan picked the adversary. They had a nasty battle. And a lot of people don't remember this. Uh, and, and he said, all right, let's bury the hatchet. Let's make everybody happy. I'll ask George Bush to be my vice president. It worked out well. But this idea that you can't have one leader of the Republican Party, which is what Paul Ryan's implying, is just stupid. And to do it at the Reagan Library, where the one man was in charge of the party, just shows how stupid these rhinos really are. My friend Ben Ferguson, everybody, check out the Ben Ferguson podcast and look for his show on weekends, the Ben Ferguson radio show. Ben, thanks so much, buddy. Be talking to you soon. Hey, man. And congrats. Enjoy the enjoy the day and celebrate it. Thank you. Yeah, normally it's not all of our district normally open then. So so this is one of the first ones. I think they sent like one of the corporate media outlets sent some reporter down. They were trying to make fun of Baker, like all oh, these yokels are having kids go in school. How cra how crazy are these people? Right. The crazy people are the ones that are vaccinated, still wearing six masks in New York City. I mean, to be honest with you. Oh, man, it stings because it's true, unfortunately. And I, I really do believe, as I've said to you so many times now, it is a, it is essentially a, a mental illness. It is, it is a real, it's an anxiety disorder. And that's what people are suffering from now because of the pandemic. And I just think we need to be clear about this. We need to be honest about this because otherwise we'll never really get past it. Otherwise we'll never be in a place where we can finally say, 
we, we don't have people walking around in fear anymore. But, you know, DeSantis as an option for president, I tweeted out yesterday that it's it's just a question of when for DeSantis. as And I don't mean running. I think he's going to win. I don't mean just running. I think he's going to be the president of the United States. Uh, he's just he's got too strong a record. He gets it. He's smart. He's good on his feet. He governs well. He understands the landscape. He communicates well. And and I just think that it's the big question that remains here is will uh, will Donald Trump decide that he wants to get in himself or that he's going to push the apparatus and essentially, you know, be the guy who'll be the chairman, you know, emeritus in a sense of MAGA and push Ron DeSantis forward. I think that's the big question. But one thing I will say is the fact that the left hates the idea of Trump running against so much, the fact that all the right people get so upset at the notion of Trump running again and, and are trying to convince us not to not to allow that to happen does make me think about it a bit more. Here's a, an MSNBC host. Play one. What I don't understand about the GOP, because they are Donald Trump and beyond that, they're not they're the party of no, the party of resentment. They don't stand for anything. What I don't get is how dumb it is because Trump is a losing proposition right now. He's got 75% of the party, which translates to 30% of the population. He's not electable again. He cannot get any swing voters. So what I don't get is why they are so beholding to him in that it's a loser. He's a he's an absolute loser going forward. And that's beyond the indictments that are coming. They obviously talked about earlier on the show with my old buddy Michael Cohen about Michael Cohen. But it's a loser. But the party is lost. It's completely they fall down. They can't get up. Yeah. When you when you have someone like Donnie Deutsch who's saying that Trump can't win, it makes me think, I think Trump maybe can win. When you upset all the right people, it's very important in conservative politics, media to know when you're upsetting the right people, you're you're definitely getting close, you know. And the no, the, they're so insistent that Trump is a loser. Really, they were also insistent in 2016. So I'm just saying, I'm open to this. Back and forth. I'm open to these different thought processes as we go forward on this one, um, but I'm uh, I'm definitely going to be keeping a, a close eye on DeSantis. I I think I think he's our guy so far. We'll see that it's a long time from now to to have the Republican primary, but I think right now he looks like the guy. There are a lot of VPN providers out there. You've probably heard of a couple of them, and maybe you've even used a VPN before. You're familiar with it. But I do my research on sponsors. I only recommend brands to my listeners that I believe in and that I use when I can. And that's why I'm telling you with full confidence, ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. All right, here's why. ExpressVPN is a virtual private network, so it protects you by hiding your IP address from spying from big tech and encrypts your data. But ExpressVPN, unlike a lot of competitors, doesn't log your data. It doesn't try to make money by selling your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info for sales purposes, okay? You want ExpressVPN, and it's so easy to use. Protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Go to expressvpn.com buck and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash buck. Again, expressvpn.com slash buck to learn more. But now Joe Biden is president, and Democrats control both houses of Congress. And you can bet that rising crime will be an issue in the 22 campaign. And perhaps that's why Attorney General Merrick Garland just announced a new multi-pronged plan to combat violent crime. 
including federal agents helping local authorities identify and arrest repeat violent offenders, the ATF embedding with local homicide units, and the DEA working to disrupt violent drug trafficking gangs, all while investing in crime prevention and community policing. Despite the spike in mass shootings, Republicans in Congress will continue to block gun reform bills, even modest reforms like background checks, which have shown supermajority support. So while James Carville argues in The Wall Street Journal that Democrats are the anti-crime party, the raging Cajun knows from harsh experience that Republicans can turn rising crime into a culture war wedge issue. And as we turn the corner into summer, which is the usual increase in violent crime, public safety is again front and center in people's minds after decades of declines. And Democrats are going to have to deal with it or risk political backlash. Yeah, isn't it amazing to hear the Democrat mouthpiece for CNN there talking about how they're the ones that really want to fix the crime issue? I mean, their arguments are garbage. Oh, yeah, background checks. You're right. If, if we strengthen the background checks, that's really going to do a lot to stop homicides and shootings in Chicago and St. Louis and New Orleans and Baltimore and Oakland. It's going gonna, it's gonna to do a lot to stop the shootings in those high crime cities. No one thinks that there's no data to support it. It's not reasonable. It's not rational to believe that. But they do. I assure you, they they think that that's that's the big, you know, the big secret sauce here to turn the crime wave around. If only we would ban bump stocks or ghost guns or pick the latest, you know, issue gun issue du jour. Then it would then it would turn the crime. But Republicans won't go along with it. What you've what you've seen is is a, such a difference in mentality as a result of the COVID lockdowns and how we've dealt with this pandemic. Democrats will put you through endless harassment. They will turn into a nightmarish uh, a nightmarish hall monitor at the first opportunity, and it doesn't matter how stupid what they're saying you have to do is. They will say it and they will insist. They will demand that you do it. They will demand that you obey their little petty commands. And that's why on gun control, it's just we always have this discussion as though there is no gun control. There's already a ton of gun control. There's gun control all over the place. I got to say, as I understand it, uh, Abbott in Texas, I don't think he's actually. Let me check and see. Has Abbott signed the gun bill? Because uh, it seems to me. Nope. Nope. Uh, it seems to me that he has not yet got it. I mean, he's got constitutional carry now on his desk in Texas. And at least as of yesterday. Oh, no. He says he will. He says he'll sign. I don't think he's signed it yet. Anyway, I'll, I'll keep folk. I'll, I'll I'll make sure I keep an eye on that one. But the the gun control stuff that the left will talk about here is just it's just harassing lawful gun owners. In fact, the the data uh, on concealed carry permit holders, for example, is that they're more law-abiding, I believe, even than police is what everyone's been saying recently. So you're, you're le- if you're a concealed carry permit holder, you're less likely to commit a criminal act even than a cop On the based on the numbers. It seems hard to believe, but that's the, that's the statistic. That's what I've been told and I've been hearing. So, uh, you know, it, it's... The Democrats are unserious, just fundamentally unserious about handling this crime situation, stopping it. They just would rather pretend that it has nothing to do with BLM. It has nothing to do with all of the different ways in which Democrats 
have been undermining public safety and and making it harder for there to be uh, you know law and order. I mean, make make it harder for us to continue on with this. And you know, in, instead of speaking out, for example, and saying the right things here about this, um, here here you go, Gavin. Well, actually, let me start with former President Obama. Who, who could tell everybody, stop blaming cops. Cops are not the problem. They're actually the solution, as much as they can be, to the problem of gun violence and homicides and all the rest of it. But this is what Obama says. Play 17. If, I, if you ask me what are the things I wish I might have done better or more effectively, the thing that I, I, I constantly struggled with was how could I get the passion and... Uh, concern that had been focused in with Trayvon and Ferguson and uh, the subsequent events. Uh, how can I help people make the link between uh, those events and political power and action, not just at the federal level, but mo- even more importantly at the state and local levels where the vast majority of criminal law and policing decisions are made? Yeah, how about just saying respect cops and let's really deal with where the violence is occurring and look at look at the actual causes of it and how we can bring down crime. You know, how, how about speak with clarity on that point? That would, I think, be so much more effective, so much more helpful. Uh, or you could just be Governor Gavin Newsom, who's fighting back a recall effort in California. And, you know, he's not done doing his, hey, I'm suave Gavin Newsom. Here I am. I just always sort of look like I stepped off a movie set, but I'm your governor. Play eight. But it's time time to deal with the endemic before this pandemic of gun violence, the pre-existing condition that somehow sort of pushed aside last year, but now has raised its ugly head again this year. And wake up to this reality and take a little damn responsibility, all of us, to loo a little bit more and a little bit better this time. And move beyond the platitudes and the usual rhetoric that tends to mark not just these moments, but the aftermath of these moments. As all of you go away and this fades out of view, and then we rinse and repeat someplace else in this country. So, again, to the victims, to those who lost their lives and the families lost their loved ones, yes, our hearts go out, but we are resolved to not make this meaningless, but to bring meaning at this tragic moment. The ultimate platitude right now when we're talking about gun control efforts is to say we need to get past the platitudes now. This time it's different. This is what we hear every time. The reason it hasn't been different in the past is that the solutions that the left, the Democrats come up with in the aftermath of any kind of a mass shooting don't make sense, aren't going to address things. In fact, usually, almost always, what the Democrats want to move on from a legislative gun control position after a mass shooting is not something that would have, and they'll even admit this, would not have prevented or in any way uh, slowed down the perpetrator of the, mo- of the mass shooting they're using as the justification for that legislation. But they just say there's gun violence, let's make more restrictions on guns. You know, if, if at some point, you know, we would realize, for example, that there are 
tens of thousands of people every year who die in auto accidents all in. I forget what the most recent number is, but it's in the tens of thousands range. Now, you, you could look at what you have for regulations on car. You have speed limits. Uh, you know, there are seat belts and there are airbags. And there's a lot of things that try to limit, you know, there, it's illegal to drink and drive. There are things that try to limit the, the risk factors out there. But at some point, you've done all that is reasonable in order to try to prevent the continued or, you know, or, or to try to prevent uh, things from worsening or um, you could have, as I've been saying all along, you could say, well, automobiles need to go 10 miles an hour. Well, that's just really annoying and people don't want to do that. But if automobiles all had to go 10 miles an hour across the country, it would cost who knows, you know, hundreds of billions probably in lost hours and productivity and everything else. I mean, think of how much more expensive it would be to get food to stores and to get people around and how much longer you'd spend commuting. Enormous cost from that. And, it, and a lot of the cost is in time and in frustration, but also, you know, economic time and everything else, uh, or, or financial costs. And yet we all understand that that would be kind of crazy, right? The gun grabbers out there, Never accept that there are already a lot of gun laws. There's already a lot on the books that regulates the ownership, sale of, acquisition of, all, all these things about guns. But instead, they always go back to the same rhetorical well about how if only we would do more, we would save so many more lives. It's just not true. Uh, I mean, this is Gavin. There was this horrible shooting, a uh, workplace shooting in San Jose. California, and this is Governor Gavin Newsom, who is doing the usual. Politicians like to emote after this. And at some level, our political leadership should obviously express solidarity with the, the, the community that is in mourning and the families that have suffered this loss. But the, then they get into these theatrics about how they must, everyone must bend the knee and agree with whatever their preferred policy position on guns is after this. And that just doesn't work. We see that for what it is. But here's the hopefully not much longer governor of California, Play 18. Perhaps the right words, but it begs the damn question, what the hell's going on in the United States of America? What the hell's wrong with us? And when are we going to come to grips with this? When are we going to put down our arms, literally and figuratively, our politics, stale rhetoric, finger pointing, all a hand-wringing consternation that produces nothing except more fury and frustration, more scenes like this repeated over and over and over again. I say that not as a governor. I just say that as a father of four. What does he really want us all to do? Background checks? Is that there already are background checks? As you know, it's strength and tighten those background checks. That's going to save everybody. It's not going to save anyone. But it doesn't matter, right? Look at COVID. Look at the lessons that we have from this. Does it matter more to people that whether they were right or wrong or whether they were perceived to be right at the time that it was of most advantage to them? You know the answer, right? It's very important for us all to remember that going forward. There has been no accountability for those who are wrong on that, and there will be no accountability for those who are wrong on a lot of policy issues. So that's why we have to hold the line and stand athwart them yelling, not on my watch. 
there were people that had raised concerns early on a couple years before saying that, you know, the safety precautions in this particular lab weren't, you know, always followed. And when that theory came out that it could have come from a lab, it came out under the former administration. And I think the messenger matters. I think during that time when that theory started to be told, it was buried in an administration and a former president who often kind of troped in uh, kind of racist terms and dog whistles. And so it buried the message that could have been actually reasonable, but no one was going to hear it because it came from under Trump's administration and the media at that time was used to what he doled out and they were going to push back on that. Soviet style rewriting of history going on here. That's what this is. Just making up nonsense. Oh, it doesn't matter that they, that the Democrats, the left got the, it's not even just about getting it wrong. Maybe we'll find out more. Maybe we don't even know, you know, where this thing came, where this virus came from yet and all that. Just put aside who's right and who's not with this. Let's be very clear about, or rather what's definitive and what's not with this. Let's be very clear. They shut something down. They shut down inquiry and discussion because they pretended that they had the right answer, the only answer. And now their explanation for this is essentially, well, because Trump said it, it had to be false. I mean, this is this is a parody, isn't this? I mean, think about it. Because Trump said it, it must it, it was incumbent upon us to object to it. It was it was necessary for us to say that he was wrong. And it's just it just all turns into a big excuse. It just all turns into, well, we won't have any accountability for what we said. We we're not to be held to account for this because ultimately we did what we had to do, which wasn't to get it right on the lab leak theory. It wasn't to be accurate about the reporting and the and the overall narrative about where the where the COVID-19 pandemic originated from, where it came from. It was to smash Trump. That was the single most important thing. That's what they cared about. And in essence, and I've been saying this all along, they got what they wanted in 2020. It worked. And we need to come to grips with that. We need to understand that what happened in 2020 was that for all the the lies the left had to tell, for all the smears and everything else, their plan to to undermine and beat Trump in the election worked. Whatever you think about the actual election itself, too. I mean, I know that's a whole other conversation, but their plan worked. And that means that, one, we have to come to grips with that. And two, we need to figure out how to stop that from happening again. Also, you know, I've been telling you for a while that they love to blame Trump supporters for vaccine hesitancy. And there's actually a substantial minority communities across the country that also have vaccine hesitancy. Here was what Biden says about this. I think this is pretty fascinating. Play two. We were reaching out into minority communities, which, by the way, and many of the older members of that community had memories of experimentation on black Americans that were not told about, like what happened to the, you know, the Tuskegee Airmen and all those tests. And so there's a, there was a great reluctance. I mean, is does he really he really thinks that the Tuskegee Airmen are why members of the minority, some people, some people in the minority community have vaccine hesitancy? 
What, what about people in the minority community or any community for that matter who have already been infected and have real questions about, hold on, we're already talking about booster shots. If I've already been infected, I have antibodies. The antibodies last at least five or six months based on the most recent, recent science, probably eight or nine, maybe forever. They don't know. So what, what about that? You know, it's he, he says it's about it's about America's racist past is, is essentially what Biden's saying. I mean, I can't tell you that that isn't at least related to some of the vaccine hesitancy in the African-American community. But it seems like quite a stretch that that's the that's really the thing to focus in on. But Biden's got a narrative and he's he's going to stick to it. He's because they want to go back to as soon as possible trashing the anti-science Trump supporters for any vaccine hesitancy when it was it's always been broader than that. And it's always required a more honest and good faith discussion than the kind of talking points the Democrats deploy. My friend John Cardillo joins us now, formerly of the NYPD, conservative commentator, radio host, TV show guy. Mr. Cardillo, good to have you. Always good to be with you, my friend. Thanks. And uh, I do. I, I just want to say, you know, today is a day of a bit of a of celebration. But, you know, you are such a a consistent, insightful and trusted voice on this show. And we look forward to having you. Uh, doing the same on on the new show as that gets going. So from from me and from all the audience, man, you know, Cardillo, you've been a stalwart here for us, and we really appreciate you. And I tweeted earlier, and I mean every word of this. Uh, it, nobody, nobody deserved, nobody's worked harder in radio than I've ever come across. Forget that we're friends and deserves that show more, Buck. Really a heartfelt congratulations. You earned it, my friend. Thank you so much, John. So I, I, I appreciate it, and, and I, I want to, because we got you know everyone listening still across the country, I want to dig into a couple things here with you about what's what's happening. You know, right now it seems to me, you know, across, across the country, not with me. Right now it seems to me that you know the, the, the Democrats are are running out of room here with what they've done as a result of the defund the police movement, as a result of of returning to a 1960s, 1970s mindset about crime. And you recently. Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, said that there was a, a community violence issue. And she meant yeah. violence coming from the community, not against the community, right? As though we're all, there's a collective responsibility here. So it goes beyond even just bad policies or stupid slogans, John. As I see it, this is, there, there's a fundamental fallacy now from the Democrat Party and the left about, the, about criminal justice and about law enforcement. Look, they won't even call crime crime. I mean, like you say, she's calling it community violence. They're sanitizing the term crime. They're sanitizing the term criminal. There's there's really no uh, complex way to look at this. You know, yesterday I was sitting with uh, a district, an assistant district attorney. They call him assistant state attorneys here in Florida, who's also a reserve deputy alongside a very close friend of mine is a criminology professor and a reserve deputy in the same agency. These are two guys, when you think about all their experience, they're police officers, one is a prosecutor, the other holds a PhD in criminology and has been a professor in the same for 20 plus years. And we were sitting around sort of incredulous, Buck, as to how ridiculous the narrative from the left is in trying to overcomplicate something very simple. More police, less crime. More armed, law-abiding citizens, less crime. The left can spin that all they want, but at the end of the day, we all know they're lying to us. Most importantly, though, this new trend of 
decriminalizing minor offenses flies in the face of 20 years, 20 years of both scientific, criminological, and empirical data on broken windows policing strategies. Take care of the little stuff, arrest for the minor conditions, it solves the big the big issues. Because you might arrest a guy in New York City for jumping a turnstile and find out you just closed two, three, four warrants for robbery, rape, potentially even homicide. When you start abandoning these proven principles, there's nowhere to go but down. Portland's a great example. In one year, Portland's murder rate is up. And if your audience didn't see it, yes, I'm saying this right. You're not mishearing me. Their murder rate is up 800%. Unbelievable and yet true, right? I mean, this is we're seeing... We're seeing numbers here, John, where you, you, you want to almost question how that could be possible. And then when you factor into it that there's a very clear effort from the corporate media to not talk about this. This is we're looking at numbers in cities across the country. Where we're talking about homicides and shootings, you know, the most serious crimes out there, murders. You're talking about numbers that would in normal political times. Uh, be grounds for a police chief, a mayor to lose his or her job. And yet this is happening simultaneously all across America. And the corporate media, John, as we know, either doesn't cover it or they say it's because of the pandemic, which is just obviously a bogus rationalization. It obviously is actually the opposite of what a pandemic should do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, look, I can speak to the NYPD. I worked there. You worked there for a bit. So we both know how Comstat runs, and I know you're going to agree with me on this. There was a time in the New York City Police Department where if the city had five, not five percent, Buck, five more murders than the month before or five more murders than the year before, the police commissioner, the first deputy commissioner, the chief of department, chief of patrol would be standing in that Comstat meeting with all the precinct commanders screaming at them and dressing them down. Now. At the NYPD, it's meh. Let's decriminalize everything. Let's not take care of anything. Let's relax the Comstat standards. I speak to former police commissioners. I speak to former chiefs, not just of the NYPD, but of large city departments. They are both perplexed and horrified that we're seeing NYPD, 22% increase in homicides. Cities like Detroit, Baltimore, Los Angeles, St. Louis, Chicago, Massive increases, double-digit percentages. This is, I need people that have never worked in law enforcement who are listening to understand, this is unheard of that this is being allowed. In the past, as you said, Buck, this would be grounds for not just sweeping political change, but the department leadership would have been gutted and leadership replaced for these numbers. Now it's not only expected, it's permitted. It's a very, very dangerous trend for public safety. Speaking of John Cardillo, former NYPD conservative commentator and has quite the fiery Twitter account, friends. If you're on Twitter, I highly recommend <laughs> you follow Mr. Cardillo. He is uh, he, he does not he does not pull punches on there. I can tell you that much. But if you want to see the left get uh, get stomped regularly on Twitter, you can follow John Cardillo there. John, if, if I made you uh, criminal justice czar or, or law enforcement czar, you know, if I made you America's top cop, which is not even really a job, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. What would what would you do if you if you were empowered to try to turn this crime wave around in and it's it's really almost more than a wave. It's like a change in our 
change in our crime reality because it's been going on for now for a year, a solid year. What would it look like to get this to stop? Well, first and foremost, I'd allow the police to use the tools in their toolbox that are legal. And the first thing I would bring back in mass is stop, question and frisk. You know, there's, there's a really sad narrative about that, and it's called stop and frisk, and they leave out the question. It's a three-step process. That is absolutely legal. I won't get into the intricacies of why it being, quote-unquote, illegal in New York is itself a legal fallacy. It's simply because one federal judge deemed it illegal and the de Blasio administration never challenged it. But stop, question, and frisk was established as legal precedent by the United States Supreme Court in the Terry v. Ohio decision of 19. 19- 64. It's almost 60 year old Supreme Court case law. So I'd bring that back because it's effective. It works. And there are about three or four checks and balances on the back end of that to ensure there's no abuse. Number two, I would bring back broken windows across the United States, taking care of the small conditions and solving the big ones. Number three, I would explain to police officers that you not only are allowed to use force, but in most instances with a violent suspect, It's the best way to protect the public and yourself. You know, I did real quick anecdote. I did a a shooting simulation yesterday alongside a current police officer. And the difference in what they're trained to do and we were trained to do and allowed to do when I was on the job is night and day. And they didn't take the opportunity to use non-lethal or lethal force in about five or six different simulator scenarios that would have been totally justified and them not doing it resulted in an innocent an innocent being beaten or killed every single time. I don't blame the cops. It, they were doing everything they were trained to do and everything in line with their current department policy. And it is absolutely disastrous and deadly. We need to bring back proactive policing, not abusive, not corrupt, proactive, where the cops are out there on patrol, able to interact and stop crime. And I think if you do those three or four very simple things, like Rudy Giuliani did in 94, you'll see a dramatic reduction very, very quickly. And, John, uh, what of any of the bills that that are out there, whether it's the Tim Scott's bill that was from a year ago, Mm -hmm. right when BLM got going, or now when they talk with Democrats and some Republicans will talk about about police reform or police oversight. Are there things in there that well, tell me, are, are there things in there that actually you think would be helpful? And what are the things that are in there that you think would be deeply unhelpful? Well, look, I think what they're trying to do is neuter police. You will not find a good cop anywhere in the United States that wants to work with bad cops. You won't find a cop that wants to work with an abusive cop, a corrupt cop, a cop that abuses their authority. Now, you take the NYPD. They're doing a lot of things wrong these days. But the one thing the NYPD did very right, going back to the Giuliani days, was they beefed up internal affairs. Internal affairs in the NYPD is its own bureau, meaning that it's given the same weight as patrol or detectives. It has a three-star chief at the top. So it's considered as important as the the proactive forward-facing parts of the NYPD. Internal affairs gets first crack at the better supervisors, the better detectives. And it's, it's resulted in the NYPD becoming a very clean, efficient department. That alone is typically enough. Now, you've got small agencies that don't have enough bodies for something like that, but they can cooperate with their state partners. What I don't like is what we're seeing in places like Austin, what we're seeing in some of these bills where 
there's funding for prosecutors to prosecute cops because then you're telling the police they're guilty the minute they step out of the, their home in the morning before they put on the uniform and the gun belt. And it's demoralizing and it creates a culture of non-proactivity because let's face it, Warren v. D.C. and the D.C. Circuit, Castle Rock v. Gonzalez in the Supreme Court. Most Americans don't know the end result of those decisions. The police have no legal duty to protect you. Maybe their department will fire them if they don't, but you can't sue them and you can't have them prosecuted. If you get killed or a family member gets killed because they didn't take action and, and all of this vilification of the police, we're driving them to be inactive. We're driving them to stand behind those legal shields and say, you know what? Well, maybe I'll get fired, but at least I won't wind up indicted and in prison for 15 years. And again, very dangerous for public safety. And John, the the qualified immunity point that is being made by some of these so-called police reform folks. Now, I was amazed to see. Well, I shouldn't say amazed to see, but, you know, it's disturbing to see that one of the lawyers, I believe, for the George Floyd family is out there saying publicly that it wouldn't even mean anything. It wouldn't even mean anything if they got rid of qualified immunity. It's no big deal. I mean, that's just a lie. A total lie. You'll bankrupt. I mean, your average police officer is making mid five figures, which is and, and in many places, small sheriff's departments, they're actually their salaries are below the U.S. poverty line. When you look at the amount of hours they work, sometimes the department doesn't have money to pay overtime. So it's paid in a, a, a compensatory time. They don't have these big unions like the NYPD, Chicago PD. Qualified immunity is a necessary tool because quite often people make bogus complaints. And when a cop does wrong, especially in the age of cell phone and body cameras, you find out about it. They're prosecuted. They're fired. Eliminating qualified immunity means a police officer would have to defend lawsuits on their own dime for every person who complains because they're upset about getting a ticket for a red light. It is insanity. And not only will it make police become inactive, people are going to quit. No one is going to go into law enforcement as a profession anymore if that becomes the trend, if that takes hold. There's going to be complete chaos in society. And look, why would you? You'll go bankrupt your first year on the job. John Cardillo, everybody, former MIPD. Follow him on Twitter and uh, look for his conservative commentary on this show and uh, and others as well. John, great to have you as always, my friend. I'll see you, I'll see you in Florida this weekend. You will, man. Looking forward to it. It's going to be a good time. I had a member of Team Buck write in to say she was doing a great job in virtual teaching and that she wanted to make sure that I knew that there are a lot of great teachers across the country during this pandemic uh, who have really stepped up. And I said, totally fair point of view. I get it. And, and that's, that's important for us all to remember. However, there are teachers who are, and they're often in the, you know, they're people that are representing teachers in the unions, but there are even individual teachers who have uh, drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak, and they don't think they should have to go in. In fact, they're, they're really pushing the it's too dangerous for us line still. Here's a guy, a high school teacher from Michigan, who is at a school board meeting and gives a scathing resignation speech. His name is Sean McCarroll, basically saying it's too dangerous for me to have to go back to work and, and I don't want to die. I mean, this guy, this guy's probably younger than me. But this is there are also teachers like this. You know, we're going to talk about the good ones. We've got to talk about some other teachers out there, too. This mentality in the school system is very real. 
Play clip 19. You don't respect us. If you respected us, you'd listen to us. You're listening to them. They don't know what happens in our classrooms. They're not there. And neither are you. You sit up on this stage, which, by the way, I hope you enjoy the space you have here. This does not exist in our classroom. And you tell us after your meetings that you so appreciate and respect us. Well, I cry. We're not angry about the situation. We can't control COVID. We're angry at you. We are angry at you. And angry is a nice way of putting it. You've done more damage to our students, our district, and our profession in the last 12 months than we've seen in the last decade. Keep going down this path, and I'll be surprised if our number one teachers even stick around. I know I'm not. I submitted my resignation to 389 last week, and I'm looking forward to doing something that's going to be valued and appreciated, not lied to and belittled. Yeah, this guy's basically saying he shouldn't have to go back in and teach. He shouldn't have to go back in and do his job. People have been working at grocery stores. I've been going to the office for, you know, eight months now. And people have been working all across the country. But they want the some of these some of these individuals, they want the. The narrative, they they want the label of being a first responder, but they don't want the actual responsibility. I'm sorry, a frontline worker, not a first pardon me, not a first responder, a frontline worker. And and then they don't want the responsibility of actually going to work on the front line, so to speak. And, you know, the reality is now, folks, we've we've seen this for a long time. We're all on the front lines of this pandemic in in one way or another. I mean, we're all out there now. If you're living your life, you know, you're being exposed to covid. Yeah, a lot of you are vaccinated. I know some of you aren't. A lot of you aren't. I don't know what the numbers are, but people have made their choices and now we're out there and we're just living our lives. We're taking risks. It's time to go back to a normal frame of mind here. And that's why, uh, you know, I like to see things like Tennessee Governor Bill Lee telling everybody that, you know, he doesn't think the kids should ever have to wear masks. You're darn right. Play a clip. Where is that one? We're looking around unsatisfied in many states, the ones that we all know about, with life in particular, life in the last year. And they've been they've been looking for a long time. But suddenly this the differences between our states and those blue states are stark. You know, their kids have been out of school for a year in Tennessee. All of the kids are in school. In fact, we have a strong school choice. Are they wearing masks? They're not wearing masks in in a couple districts. They are. We have a a law in this state that allows districts to make that decision. But I've said I don't think any kid ought to wear a mask. Why? If no kid should be forced to wear a mask, I I don't think there should be any. There should be no more debate about this. There should be no more confusion about it. No kid should be forced to wear a mask ever. Ever. And there should be laws and rules to that effect. This is absurd. And this is another one, another one where our fight is not yet over. Not even close, friends. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. It's time for Roll Call. It is indeed. Time for us to do some roll call. First of all, producer Mark, my right-hand man, the the guy who makes sure I actually show up for this show for work somewhat on time and do my show day in and day out. A big thank you to you from me and uh, and from all of Team Buck for all your hard work, all your dedication, and and having to be 
uh, willing to put me in the penalty box when necessary so we actually get this thing done on time. Well, a big thank you to you, Buck, for even allowing me this opportunity in the first place uh, to be your producer, get this close with you and the audience, and uh, congratulations. You deserve it. I'm going to echo what John Cardillo said before. There is nobody who works harder in the radio industry and deserve this more, and I'm the one who saw it up close uh, for these uh, last two years or so. So uh, I'm so proud of you, so happy, and so happy what we accomplished as a show uh, to be able to bring you to that level uh, to fill in for, uh, you know, take the shoes, I guess. I mean, nobody can fill in for Rush Limbaugh, but to take that slot uh, is just incredible. Uh, and I know you've uh, always dreamed of that, and I'm so happy that. Uh, if yeah, I man, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. And what, what we managed to do here is is pretty remarkable. I mean, if, if everyone only knew, I mean, we're putting out a show that is on over over 200 stations across the country already. And we're, we're doing this. We're reaching people from from coast to coast. I mean, from from, you know, n- northeastern tip of Maine down to the southwestern tip of uh, California. I mean, we're in people we have we have listeners in Hawaii, in Alaska, in South Korea. We have people listening to podcasts in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. People listen in the UK, listen in Canada. And it's just Mark and I connecting, especially, we, you know, we used to have like a studio and all this stuff where we'd go in for iHeart. But because of the pandemic, we just set up and we had to do it so quickly. We just set up from home and made it happen. We've been doing this show. I mean, I'm basically doing it from like the equivalent of my kitchen table. And Mark, where do you I've never seen your setup. What's what's it like for you at home? I'm basically doing it in what you would call the dining room next to the kitchen trash can next to my TV. It's a small apartment. Uh, Oh, dude, I I know. I know. You know, that's like, yeah, I know. I know what that situation is like. So. You know, I, I just think uh, it's it's going to be it's going to be exciting time here and and we're going to do we're going to do really, really good things. We're going to do good things. All right. So let's get into some roll call here. Uh, let's get to it. We have remember, if you want to send us your thoughts, Facebook dot com slash Buck Sexton or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. And that's how we do it. Bryce, first up, Buck and producer Mark. There's an editorial in today's Wall Street Journal stating Merrick Garland defends Bill Barr. Have the editors at the Wall Street Journal gone mad? Garland siding with Barr's Justice Department is more about permanently sealing the memorandum that started the Trump-Russia collusion delusion. Bryce, I got to tell you, you're bringing this one to my attention. I haven't seen it yet, so just be patient with me, my friend. I got to go check out this editorial and see specifically what you're talking about because I don't know right now. So thank you for bringing it to my attention and uh, I will get on it. I will get on it. By the way, I'm going to be down in Miami this weekend visiting my two brothers. So any of our Team Buck Miami uh, WIOD folks, look for me. I'm going to be in South Beach. I like to go where the party's at, if you know what I'm saying. Producer Mark, I'll send you some photos. But I don't actually like to party. I just like to be near where the people are partying. You like to watch the party. Yeah, exactly. Everyone else is going to be dancing, having fun, and all that stuff. I'm actually not going to be with the Snow Princess. She's at a wedding. And um, she very kindly did not force me to go with her to the wedding because I don't it's like friends of hers and I don't know anybody. Uh, So she said, you don't go be with your she's she's the best. She says, go be with your brothers. And I said, "Uh, that sounds nice. I'm very tight with my brothers. And so I haven't seen them really in a while. Certainly not both of them together. So we're going to have we're having a straight up Miami bros weekend. It's going to be like Miami Vice, except three of us. Just wait till there's a ring in the picture. You're not getting out of any weddings anymore. I know. But for now. Enjoy it while you can. Exactly. I'll take the bro. I'll take the bro time while I can. Um, all right. Let's keep going here. Mark. Hey, Buck. 
I wonder if the mask bandit who took down the mask signs in your gyms happens to be the person you know who might have worn mesh masks on a plane. He seems like a pretty cool guy, LOL. Well, Mark, I can tell you, the guy pulling down the mask signs in my gym is very, very close friends and allies with the same individual that are may or may not be uh, familiar with who wears mesh masks on planes and everywhere else for that matter and defies anyone to tell him that that's not a good enough mask. It might be even the same dude. It is possible that it would be the same guy. So there we have it. I, I feel like, Mark, I'm, uh, whoever's doing this, though, what a hero to just pull down the mask signs in the gym because the building where I live is, is too cowardly to do it. They don't, they don't want to do it because they don't want residents yelling at them, but they're also not going to tell the non-mask residents that they have to mask up. So we just have this gray area, and I think that's, that's not good. My building just did it today. Really? Well, I think as of Friday, whenever New Jersey officially does it, but yeah. I'm waiting for Uber. They got to stop with this. I don't like car services, you know, taxis, Uber, all this. They, they got to get rid of this mask madness. This is insane. It's just insane. Anyway. Good luck with that. Yeah, I know. Well, Uber is a super lib company, so that's going to be a real challenge. All right. Kelly, K-E-L-I. Buck, you rebel, you. Hope your gym workout is better now. I marched into the grocery store with no mask and wasn't confronted. I'm in California. My son told me about you a year ago. I love your impressions. The Fouch, Nancy, the maskers living in fear. I'm so much more educated on what's happening with politics. Thanks. Well, Kelly, thank you. And I hope you'll continue to listen uh, in a month when I'm hosting 12 to 3 in the in the uh, slot that Rush Limbaugh built into the biggest radio slot in America. So uh, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll come join me in the uh, in that adventure going forward. I think we'll and your son, uh, Kelly, your son is obviously a patriot, very astute and has excellent taste. So you can tell him I said all, all of that. And I so appreciate another another instance, another case of somebody passing the buck. And this is how the show has grown. This is how I got to a point where I was even, you know, in contention to be hosting in the 12 to three slot, the Rush Limbaugh slot. This is this is how this even came up, because you listening to the show were like, hey, if you like if you like conservative podcasts or talk radio, you should try Buck Sexton. My theory has always been if people try this, especially now with the passing of 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 Rush, the greatest radio host of all time. So now it's, you know, there's the Rush isn't doing a show anymore. And if people heard about this show, they would listen to it. It's just getting it in front of people because I don't you know, I don't have the same machinery behind me. I don't have the same you know, 10 people working for me, pushing social media stuff out all the time and all the rest of it. It's just, it's really just me and Mark. Good job, Mark. Thanks. Yeah. It's kind of amazing what we've, I mean, it really is amazing what we, how many people we're able to reach and how big this show has gotten with you and me essentially hanging out in our like respective kitchen slash living rooms uh, doing a radio show. Yeah, and uh, neither of us have taken a day off in a very long time, and looks like that'll continue. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's going to be a lot of work, a lot of work ahead for both of us, but that's where we're heading. All right, Kimberly next up. Hey, Buck, since anti-Semitism is on the rise, I'm trying to speak out whenever and wherever I can. Last night, I took down our mezuzah from outside our apartment. For those of you who don't know, a mezuzah is a prayer scroll in small decorative box, which Jewish people affix to all their doorways. 
On the front door, it's a clear sign to the world that we are Jewish. With the rising wave of anti-Semitism, I no longer feel safe having our front door mezuzah visible to the world. For now, I have it placed in a non-traditional spot on the inside of our door. Hiding our Jewishness was how my family survived in times of persecution. It saddens me greatly that instead of benefiting from social progress, Jews feel unsafe once again and history could absolutely repeat itself. What scares me most is that the mainstream public opinion is turning average everyday Americans against Israel and against Jewish people. What is driving the media uh, to portray Israel as evil? I'm honestly not sure. But I do know why Jewish people are not being heard. There are only 14.7 million Jewish people in the world today. We're being made the scapegoats once again. And if the world doesn't pay attention, there's very little stopping this wave of anti-Semitism from continuing to grow. Jewish people and Zionists are being blamed for the plight of the Palestinians. Since the world has turned its back on us, I will hide my mezuzah. I have no other choice but to protect my family as best I can. And I will pray the world will finally one day step up and protect the Jewish people so that my daughter will not have to hide her mezuzah. Well, Kimberly, I'm very sad to hear that you feel that your safety is is at that level of risk. And I can understand why you have the concerns you do and and given the rise of anti-Semitism. Um, Bruce Mark, do you uh, do you have a mezuzah? A mezuzah? Uh, I don't because this is an apartment, but uh, I definitely uh, I'm sure my wife will want to put one up when we move, when we own a place. What do you what do you think as as a, a Jewish American? What do you think about the anti-Semitism rise these days? Uh, I mean, I think it's disgusting. Uh, you know, I'm not I, I have never gotten into the Israel-Palestine conflict. I, it doesn't even have anything to do with that. It has to do with. You know, people want to support the Palestinians who are being harmed, which is fine, but they're taking it out on the Jews as if me as an American Jew. I'm not Israeli. I have nothing to do with that. I'm just Jewish. Um, so it's very disheartening to see. I've seen a lot of the attacks uh, lately in, in, in New York, all over, especially New York hurts the most just because, you know, I've lived here my whole life. Um, but all over the country, it's and even around the world, it's really been hard and, you know, I even told my wife. My wife drives back from Long Island to New Jersey once a week. Last week, I said, you're not allowed to go through the city because it's not like, you know, uh, we're not Orthodox. We don't look visibly Jewish, but you never know. Um, And, you know, I just never thought I would live in a world where uh, that would be able to happen. So uh, it is definitely disheartening as a Jewish person in America. Yes. Do you you ever feel like you're do you ever get a little feeling that you're unsafe as a result? Have you ever had that feeling or not really? Uh, I mean, I do I, a little bit, but I also understand that if you look at me, you wouldn't understand. You wouldn't know that I'm Jewish. You would just think I'm just some white guy walking around, which is fine. Yeah, you're, I, I don't think anybody you don't wear a yarmulke. I don't wear so. a yarmulke. I'm not orthodox or I don't do anything like that. So I don't feel threatened. But the fact that somebody could be for that. And if, if I ever did go to temple for something or whatever, I could be harmed. Yes, I, I don't like that. Uh, Kimberly, there you go. So you're hearing from from me, but also from Mark, who is who is uh, obviously Jewish and, and giving his perspective, too. But God bless. Stay safe. And I understand you got to take the protections you need for your family. Always. No one cares about you and your family's safety more than you do. Always remember that. Tim, next up here. Hey, Buck and producer Mark. Greetings from the great state of Ohio, where we landed somewhere in the middle of the whole covid restrictions mess. I get a weekly email from my congressman, Warren Davidson. I had to laugh out loud when I read in his email about the work he's doing for Ohioans when he wrote, This week, I continue to build support for my new bill, the Fauci's Incompetence Requires Early Dismissal Act. Introduced last week, this bill would place a 12-year term limit on appointees for the director of the National Institute 
of allergy and infectious disease, a post Dr. Fauci has held since 1984. Americans agree Dr. Fauci has sown more confusion around the COVID-19 pandemic than he has confidence. I also know this goes back a bit, but the Baconator burger from Wendy's is hands down one of the best fast food burgers, period. Keep the history podcast coming. Love Dracula and Malta. Anxiously awaiting the part two of Malta. Shields high from Ohio. Tim, Malta part two is coming. I've just, I, now you all know at least why I've been so busy and so, you know, running around and just, you know, it's because it's been a lot. We've had to get this all lined up and the press and the contracts and all these things. So I have had a lot going on here, but I do have to go to my my expert in being it because he can actually eat burgers with buns and I can't. So he's a better expert than I am. Producer Mark, the Baconator burger from Wendy's. What think you? I mean, it is it makes you feel horrible after you eat it. I think I've only had one because I believe the Baconator has like three patties and six or seven or eight strips of bacon like it is not good for you but it is quite delicious yeah of course wow I mean, how could it that's not a be? lot yeah i mean even i would say that's a lot of bacon and stuff to be in the mix i mean there, listen so. I, I love bacon and i love burgers but you know there's a limit for everyone yeah just if you're wondering it's like well how jewish is producer mark producer mark loves bacon love bacon. <laughs> so. <laughs> so definitely not very jewish there you go, folks. All right, we'll come back in a second with more Roll Call. All right, Roll Call continuing here. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. We got Russ writing in here. Uh, good evening, Freedom Hut. It has been a while since I reached out. Life has been pretty busy with a few extra pokers on the fire. As always, thanks for all you do. Mark and the rest of the team to keep us deplorables, entertained, and informed. Would like you to know that I passed the buck this weekend to my parents. My mother will most likely try it. My dad wants to, just wants to ignore everything and try to live his life. They're in their 70s and have done their time, so I don't blame them. Hell, he put up with my shenanigans for 20 years under his roof. That's not, that is enough to drive anyone into retirement. I still listen on a regular basis, but find myself becoming numb to the reality we live in. While I have it better than most living in South Carolina, come to Columbia and I'll take you to my lake house. Well, thank you so much. The specter of oppression and government overreach remains. I, like you, know that while things are looking closer to reality, the government, in Democrats' hands, will reach for control under any pretense in the future. I will say this, I freely walked into most stores lately with no mask and will refuse to wear one again. I will either defy the orders or find places that do not require it. I am done. Even vaccinated, I'll refuse to show papers. Last time I checked, this is not communist China yet. It's time for all Americans to realize the tragedy of our complacency in the past year and grow some backbone russ thanks so much for writing in and uh i think russ just sort of said it well i don't think i have much to add there other than you know man just find those find those little moments of 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 tranquility joy peace you know find those places in your day-to-day either alone or with your family with the people that matter the most to you just just keep your focus on that when you start to feel like things are getting to be too much TJ Buck, something I've been thinking about lately is the lack of masculinity in our culture in the U.S. and how some of our biggest adversaries like China and Russia are now fully embracing masculinity, especially within their military ranks. I was wondering, though, do you have any thoughts on how those countries may have a perverse view of masculinity compared to our ideal view of masculinity here in the U.S.? Despite the current politicization and feminization of our military, I have my own thoughts, but I'd like to hear what you've got to say. Um... 
you know, TJ, I would want some of Team Buck that are actually in military, you know, that are current or former military to weigh in on this one. And I do think that masculinity in general is under assault in America, but how that's playing out in the armed forces, I would leave that to other people that have a, a closer view of it, to be honest with you, um, and have much more of an understanding of that. So for today, I'm going to leave it there, folks. Big day today in the Freedom Hut. Tell folks about the show. Join the Team Buck team because it's getting bigger all the time. Shields high.